Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, I'm Meg Teets and this is Sorta Awesome. Hello and welcome back, Awesomes. You are listening to the show that is all about helping you be smart, strong, and social. We are in your earbuds every single week with all the awesome that you need to know. And you can also find us on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show or over on Facebook in our Sorta Awesome Hangout group. This is episode 207 of Sorta Awesome, and we hope this summer is shaping up to be one of your best summers yet. We are continuing our Sorta Awesome Stories series today, and I cannot wait for you to meet today's superstar awesome, and you'll get to hear her story of encountering and overcoming imposter syndrome, which maybe a few of us have some experience with ourselves. It's going to be so good, you guys, but first I wanted to give you a quick reminder that if you have not yet followed us over on Instagram, we would love to have you over there. We always update you when we drop new episodes of Sorta Awesome, and we try to pop into your Instagram feed every now and again with news about the show or funny memes, sometimes even encouraging reminders about just how awesome you really are. So if you're on Instagram and you haven't connected with us over there, go ahead and look us up right now. You can find us over there at Sorta Awesome Show. Okay. This is episode 207. I'm very excited to introduce you to today's Superstar Awesome, who will be sharing her story. Dr. Grace Wilson is a digital pack rat, an aspiring plant lady, and a busy working mom of four boys. She's an Enneagram type 9 ENFP, very familiar, might sound familiar to many of you. She loves deep connection over a great meal and a glass of wine. And Grace earned her PhD in medical family therapy from East Carolina University in 2014, where her research focused on couples, trauma, infertility, and high-risk pregnancies. Now she teaches family medicine residents about working with families, treating mental health, and building their own resilience as clinicians. Originally Texans, Grace and her husband of nearly 13 years, Jonathan, now make their home in Oklahoma City with their three-year-old Henry and their two-year-old triplets, Alex, James, and Luke. Grace, welcome to Sorta Awesome. Thank you so much, Meg. I'm so excited to be here. I'm very, very much looking forward to our conversation. This is a particularly fun show for me because Grace is an awesome turned real-life friend. We bumped into each other. I can't even remember that when this was, but I know it was at the Science Museum here in Oklahoma City. Do you even remember when? 
Oh, I totally do. My family was visiting from out of town and I snuck away from work one day to go be at the museum. And it had to have been at least a couple of years ago. I remember looking over and I was like, oh my gosh, that's Meg Teets. <laughs> of course, my family was like, who are you talking about? <laughs> yes. And so I'm so glad that I got up the courage to come say hello. I am so glad too. Really, that's such a total ENFP move too. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, she might think I'm weird, but knowing what I know, I don't think so. So I'm just going to say hi. <laughs> I really am so glad that you did. It has been so wonderful to get to know you and your story over time. And I'm so glad that it has really developed that way. So awesomes, if you're ever out and about in Oklahoma City and you want to say hi, please do come say hi. I can't promise that me or my children will be on our best behavior, but (laughs) (laughs) please do come say hello. So Grace has an amazing story that has a lot of twists and turns, but there are so many parts of her story that I know you guys are going to find so relatable, especially this part about encountering what the imposter syndrome is and how we can work through it and continue on the path that we're meant to be on. So we're going to get to all of that in just a minute. But first, let's do go ahead and start this show the way we always do with our awesomes of the week. It's that moment in the show where we take the time to tell you about Well, whatever's awesome in life right now, whether it's books or TV shows, movies, podcasts, products, whatever's making life just a little bit more sparkly and fun. So Grace, I can't wait to hear what you brought for the show. Well, this felt like a lot of pressure to have my actual awesome of the week on the show. But once I started thinking about it, I had a really clear answer. So my awesome of the week is a makeup product. It is from the company Benefit and it's called Gimme Brow. And this makeup is a little bit like mascara for your eyebrows. (laughs) I have very blonde eyebrows. If I don't put any makeup on them, I might as well not have any eyebrows. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, but I never have been able to get the hang of a pencil. I always felt like it was too much pressure. I used to feel like if I didn't have mascara on, I didn't have makeup on. But now I feel like if I don't have something on my eyebrows, I don't have makeup on. (laughs) It is like my number one essential. And even for a little while, they stopped making it while they reformulated. Um, And I almost panicked. Luckily, I had a backup tube. (laughs) It's that essential to me. And it's just really easy to use. And it makes my eyebrows awesome. I relate to that so much. I also have very blonde, fine eyebrows. In fact, my eyebrows, as I've gotten older, are starting to just sort of disappear at the edges. <laughs> so I'm the same way. I'm so glad that you're talking about this because I myself, I think I've been doing it the hardest way. I've been trying to learn the technique of doing it with like a micro pencil. Mm-hmm. And it's a little tricky. I get it in concept, you know, short strokes and follow yeah. the arch and all this, but I just could not make my hands do what I wanted to do. So the gimme brow makes it so easy. Perfect. I love it. I'm definitely going to have to keep an eye out for that on my next trip to Ulta for sure. We're going to put a link in the show notes for you all so you guys can check it out too if you are looking to up your brow game. Interestingly, I feel like our awesomes of the week are totally in tandem with each other because you're talking about putting your eye makeup on. I'm here to tell you about something that I'm loving for taking your makeup off. Perfect. These are the micellar water wipes from Trader Joe's. You guys know that recently I've been talking about all of these amazing beauty products and skincare products, especially that we're finding at Trader Joe's these days. Who would have guessed? (laughs) I'm never surprised when I find amazing things there. (laughs) But beauty, I wouldn't have thought to look. 
Yes, totally. So micellar water is a product that started to get a lot of buzz probably like four or five years ago. It's a substance that looks like water, but it's actually made up of tiny little balls of cleansing oil molecules called micelles. And those micelles are attracted to oil and dirt. So the sort of idea behind it is you can use micellar water as a cleanser for your skin because when you put it on your skin, it draws out, whether it's makeup or dirt or sweat or whatever is on your skin, but it's not going to dry it the way that some cleansers do. So some people use micellar water like as the first step in their skincare routine, maybe make a first pass over their face before they use their regular cleanser. Some people will just use this as their first and only step (laughs) for taking their makeup off. So recently, Trader Joe's released micellar cleansing wipes. They come in a little package. They're $3.99 for 20 of the towelettes. And I have to say, I'm super loving them, probably because I have tried so many different makeup remover wipes or just skincare wipes in the past without fail, whether it was a drugstore product or a much more expensive one, they always broke out my face. And I would get Mm. so annoyed because like, these should be such a handy solution, especially if you're traveling or just want to have like a backup that you keep in your purse for various you know, reasons or whatever. My sister, who's a makeup and beauty guru, like always has a pack of cleansing wipes on her. (laughs) Just in case, you never know. But I have never found any that I could consistently use on my skin until I started using these micellar cleansing wipes that Trader Joe's has put out. They're so gentle. They're really great. I like to use them mostly to do, like I said, that first pass, just kind of wipe off, especially if I do have a full face of makeup on just kind of give my face a wipe with these towelettes to get like the initial layer of makeup off. And then I'll go ahead and use my regular cleanser. But they are especially great for removing your eye makeup. So if you wear waterproof mascara or my favorite mascara is the Lash Alert from Ico, which is not necessarily meant to be waterproof. It's a great mascara. I love it, but it's a little hard to get off at the end of the day. These wipes are fantastic. You just wipe over your eyes, over your eye makeup. And because it's just micellar water, it is not irritating. It doesn't make your eyes sting or burn. So I've been super loving them. Again, I think they're so great for travel. If you're in a hurry, some people even use them. Like if you have been wearing your makeup all day, but you want to do like a refresh because you're going to go out in the evening, you can use one of these real quick, kind of take off what you had been wearing and then reapply after that. So I don't know, just love them. They're so great. That is awesome. I discovered that micellar water, I don't know, a year ago or something in my birch box. Oh, yeah. It's just fascinating to me because it doesn't sting and it's not sticky and it right. just takes everything off. So I'm going to have to try those wipes. I haven't tried it in a wipe form before. Yes, they're kind of magical because the texture really is like water. It does feel like if you just pour it on your fingers, it does feel a little bit different from water. But like you said, it's not sticky at all. It's so gentle and just kind of like this miracle stuff. So, and now you can get them like to go with these wipes. (laughs) So I'll put a link in the show notes for these as well. If you want to check them out, these are our awesomes of the week. As you know, every Friday, we really want to hear what's awesome in your life. So we do over on Instagram, which I was talking about at the top of the show, we have an awesome of the week discussion every Friday morning on Instagram. And of course, we do that in our sort of awesome hangout group every Friday, our long-standing tradition 
of having an awesome of the week thread in there. I have found so many awesomes in my life from that thread. (laughs) So if you have not already joined us on Facebook in our sort of awesome hangout group, we would love to have you over there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash sort of awesome hangout. Awesomes, as I've shared many times here on the show, Kyle and I have a long-standing tradition of ending the day with conversation and a grown-up beverage. One of my favorite things about the summer is sitting on the patio while we listen to the cicadas and sip our drinks. But with temperatures soaring above 100 as they do every Oklahoma summer, that used to mean cutting our time together short because our drinks would get warm and watered down so quickly. But Last week, I busted out our wine insulator and uncorked gift set bundle from Brewmate. Brewmate's stylish insulated drinkware is designed to keep your favorite beverages ice cold all day long. Brewmate is on a mission to shake up the beverage industry for the better. So whatever your taste in beer, wine, or spirits, Brewmate makes sure every sip is the perfect temp. So check it out, the wine insulator. It fits a full bottle of wine and it maintains the perfect temperature for 24 hours. You can bring your wine on the go without worrying about keeping it chilled, whether you're hitting up a local campground, you're getting together with family at the lake, or maybe you're just enjoying the great outdoors with someone you love. And the uncorked wine glasses are just as awesome. They're the largest insulated wine glass in the world. It fits over a half a bottle of wine, you guys. And it comes with a splash-proof lid. Brewmate has some of the coolest colors and designs you're going to find. Kyle and I love the walnut design. It's subtle and classy, but if you're into something a little more splashy, they have tons of colors and even glitter finishes to check out too. So you guys don't settle for warm alcohol. Chill out with your favorite drinks all day long with Brewmate. Visit brewmate.com and add code awesome to get 15% off your first order. That's 15% off your first order when you go to brumate.com and add code awesome. All right, Grace, are you ready to be in the hot seat? I'm ready. (laughs) Bring it on. I'm a little nervous just because I've listened to the show since my oldest son was a tiny baby. So about the middle of 2015. And I got a little nervous because I was so excited. But then I thought, you know, I really trust Meg as an interviewer. I know she's going to make this easy. Yes. And it's just going to be fun. It is going to be fun. And I think it will be super easy. You have so much in your story that I want to get to. So let's just go ahead and get started. I want to start with you deciding to go on the path of getting your PhD. And the reason I want to start there, I'm being totally selfish, in my like imaginations, my life took a different timeline that I would have continued on in academia and I would have gotten my PhD. Now, as an Enneagram 9 ENFP myself, I have all these idealized, <laughs> fantastical ideas about like how like romantic and wonderful and just so much fun getting your PhD would be. But you have lived the life. So I have lived it. You know, it's funny that you say that because I feel like there's so much, even before my PhD, like you and I had such a similar path in a lot of ways. I got married really young and my husband and I, you know, we're from a similar geographical area, but then we just stayed in school forever. (laughs) (laughs) We actually have all the same degrees, which is an added little twist. So we did our undergrad together. And then both knew that we wanted to go on. I mean, we were psychology majors. And when you're a psychology major, if you don't want to go to grad school, it really limits your options. Totally. And so 
we ended up at Oklahoma State in their marriage and family therapy program and had not actually intended to go to the same program. I'd applied to PhD programs straight out of my undergrad thinking, oh, well, I'll just skip a couple steps, (laughs) get this done. And then that didn't work out because I just didn't have the experience. I wasn't prepared. And the programs that I applied to recognized that. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up joining Jonathan at the Marriage and Family Therapy Program. And while we were there, so it's a very intensive master's program, really all clinical programs, because not only are you getting the academic expertise, the only way to learn to do therapy is to do it. And so you have to spend a ton of hours practicing. And, you know, we call it a practice for a reason to get your basic level of proficiency where they're like, okay, you can leave and continue your learning. So during that time, we were trying to decide what was next for us. And my husband had a pretty clear path. He knew he wanted to be a college professor. I knew that I probably didn't want to be a college professor, but I loved learning. Really some of that idea of academia that you thought, you know, we're sitting on the lawn at the (laughs) university with our books spread out in front of us and studying all of our passion areas. There was some of that, absolutely. But there also is a lot of work. And so we chose a clinical PhD program after our clinical master's, which again means a lot of that extra work of working with people and seeing clients. And pretty early on said, I don't know exactly what I want my job to be. I want to do some teaching. I want to do some research. I want to do some supervision. I just kind of want to do it all. Like the most ENFP answer you could. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, (laughs) yes, yes. That may be actually a big part of why I didn't stay in academia because Mm -hmm. there was too much that I wanted to do. And I was like, there's so much. I think the wonderful woman who became my mentor when she was interviewing me asked me like, draw a pie and divide up the sections of how you want to spend your time in your career. And it was like almost even with all of the parts. And I think she was thinking, oh, bless your heart. (laughs) But I discovered there is a job that's like that. And it's the job that I'm in now. And so pretty quickly, once I got to my PhD, there was a path that I was set on. And so that time was a really intensive time. For one thing, my husband and I moved. We were Like you said earlier, we both grew up in Texas and then we'd lived in Oklahoma for seven years. And then we moved to North Carolina. We didn't know anyone there except each other and just were kind of setting on this adventure together. And then we lived there for two years while we did all our coursework and clinical work and the groundwork for our dissertations. And then at the end of that two years, I still had the dissertation to write, but we had to be on internship that year. And Things just lined up. So he's a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University now. And the position was opening at the same time that he needed his internship. And he applied and was able to have his first faculty year as his internship for our PhD. So he double dipped a little bit. It worked out really perfectly. Meanwhile, here I am like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I mean, I know what I want to do, but I guess we will go to Oklahoma and just kind of see what happens and hope that a job opens up for me. And so I spent that year doing a few different things like teaching some classes and doing a little research and writing my dissertation. And so professionally, I was working on finishing all those requirements. And then in the spring of that year, it worked out that my job opened up now. And I was able to walk pretty straight into it after graduation. But then like, I think this is sort of a theme of my story the professional and the personal started to overlap. And so Mm. that year that I was working on my dissertation, 
at that point, this was 2013, we'd been married for seven years. And I wanted to be a mom. I've always wanted to be a mom. We knew that we wanted a family. And so we got rid of our birth control. And my research was on couples and infertility and pregnancy loss. And then all of a sudden, I found myself walking a road of infertility. And so all of this kind of was happening all at the same time. Yeah. And like you said, there are definitely ways that your like clinical and research and academic work really began to like become real life experience for you probably in ways that you had not guessed that it would. Before we go forward, I would really love for you to tell us about as you were working on your PhD, when you started to encounter and how this was manifested to you, the idea of like imposter syndrome, and maybe even tell us a little bit like from your view, what imposter syndrome even is. Absolutely. So it was that wonderful mentor that I talked about earlier, Dr. Angela Lamson, who first introduced the idea of imposter syndrome to me. So I would go to my meetings with her and just be so nervous and not knowing, am I doing the right thing? Am I choosing the right thing? Like, who am I to even be here? This was an accident. You didn't mean to accept me. You didn't know what you were getting. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just totally lost. And she put a name to that feeling for me of imposter syndrome. The way I would summarize imposter syndrome, it's that feeling that you get that you're secretly incompetent Mm. and you're constantly just on the verge of everyone finding out that you're a fraud. Yes. So you feel like you're just faking it and you feel like you're going through the motions and trying to do your best, but you don't know what you're doing. And so I had that so much in my PhD you know, I was put into all of these situations that I'd never been in before. Here, go teach this class. Tell us what you want to do your dissertation on. I'm like, how am I supposed to know what a dissertation should be on? (laughs) Yes. But here I am expected to do it. And she put that word of imposter syndrome to me. And then over the years, it has just become such a thing that I try to identify in myself and now in my supervisees and to give them the language around it. Because I think that just knowing, hey, you're not crazy and you're not a failure. And actually a whole lot of people feel like this can be super reassuring. Definitely. I think when you describe it that way, probably every single person who's listening can think back to a time in their life where they felt like, oh my gosh, I'm actually a fraud and I'm just about to be discovered for being a fraud. I'm totally faking it here. Or I think the other key component too, I hadn't even thought about this, but like this promotion or this relationship or like whatever, this was just an accident. And at any time it's going to be taken away from me because it wasn't even ever meant to be kind of thing. Yeah. And I think there's a piece of it that's humility, but maybe misplaced or too strong humility, like all of these things that have happened to me. And I'm like, well, yeah, my story is kind of crazy. But I remember thinking in college, like what's really special about me? Like I'm just any other person. And so there's still some of that that I carry with me in a healthy form. That's humility, you know, not thinking too much of myself. But when that goes too far, don't here when I can't acknowledge the things that are special about me and the things that I do bring, then it becomes less healthy and kind of gets over into that imposter syndrome territory. Totally. Yes. Well, and it definitely makes sense in the context of doing, you know, higher learning and those types of things. This idea of looking around and being like, I'm confident everybody here is smarter than me or better at this, or they know what they want their dissertation to be about already. And (laughs) 
Yes. Oh my gosh. The whole interview trail. So marriage and family therapy is a relatively small field. And so when we interviewed at all these different schools, we were interviewing with all the same people. And I would hear these other applicants that were ostensibly at the same level as me going on about all these amazing ideas and all of what they want to do their research about. And I was like, women and families. (laughs) And it developed over time. But I think I wish that I could tell myself then like, you're okay. And what you're feeling is normal. Everyone's feeling like that. Some people hide it better than others. But the people who are most at risk for imposter syndrome are basically our friends who are listening to this podcast. So, but you know, it's very common in women. It's more common in people of color. It's very common when you're a perfectionist or when you are very talented in an area or gifted because it's hard for us to see up close, oh, like this is something special about me. We think everybody just has that, whatever that unique special characteristic is. I'm so glad that you said that. I'm like having a real life application epiphany because Daisy, my oldest daughter, we can look at her and say, you know, objectively, she's very talented when it comes to music. She has this gift. And so one of her things that she's learned through the years in orchestra is composition. And she actually has a piece that will be played by the Oklahoma City Philharmonic in the fall. That is amazing. Which is so fantastic. But she has battled imposter syndrome every step of the way and just feeling like there's nothing special about this piece. Anybody could write this. And then even continuing on in, they're going to play the piece and everyone's going to realize it's really dumb. And like, it's like mm-hmm. all of these yep. Exactly. Definitely a perfectionist. And she definitely does have this gifting in this area that I think you're so right that sometimes when it does come naturally to you, it's almost like you wouldn't think this would be the case, but it makes it even harder sometimes to develop those things Mm -hmm. because you're like, I just can do this part naturally. Yes. You can't point to evidence that you earned it. And so then you're like, well, if I didn't earn this, maybe this was all an accident. And then to complicate things, Usually from the outside to everyone else, these people are doing great. They're the bright ones. They're the talented ones. And so, you know, when you're a retirement teacher, you look for the people that are struggling and you try to come alongside and offer support and remediate. But a lot of times we miss those people who are really successful or who are really doing well. And I had a supervisor, another mentor of mine who gave me some really great advice. She said, Grace, you're always going to look fine. And so you have to be able to speak up when you need something and when you struggle, because from the outside perspective, you're fine. And I would imagine for Daisy, like her mentors are not thinking, oh, she's struggling. We've got to offer her the support because she's excelling. And so then she's missing out on a lot of that really purposeful building up and intentional support that she would be getting otherwise. That is exactly what has been happening in our life in this whole semester of her working on this. So yeah, you totally called it. And that makes so much sense. So thank you for that. Let's circle back to where we kind of left off in your story. So you Mm -hmm. and Jonathan are ready to start a family and then you're encountering some challenges that you were not expecting. So let's kind of pick up there. Yeah, well, I will say I'm a pretty open book about my infertility. And I think a piece of that is just, it's so central to who I am professionally and personally that it's very cohesive part of who I am. Turns out I had polycystic ovarian syndrome and I was always a little envious of my friends in high school that were like, oh, well, I know I need to put a tampon in my bag today because I'm going to start my period tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I was like, what are you talking about? How do you know that? 
because I was never regular. And sometimes I go two or three months without a cycle. And I had asked providers about it in the past. And they were like, Oh, well, you never know. Who knows, maybe you won't have any trouble conceiving. And I think that was a piece of what made me interested in that as a research area and interested in learning more about couples and infertility and the impact that and some personal experience that I've had with close family and Mm -hmm. friends. And so then when it was time for us to start trying, I approached it with gusto as any researcher would, (laughs) uh, researcher overachiever. And so I got my test strips and my thermometer and my tracking apps and I was all ready to like figure this out. And so I was temping and testing and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then it was like 140 days had gone by and I had not had a cycle like clearly something is wrong here this was all during our dissertation writing year and it was a lot and I didn't really have the resources yet to connect with a fertility specialist and so I saw a nurse practitioner who was really wonderful with me she took my concerns really seriously I was all prepared to advocate for myself I was like I have these charts I know what this means I know what I'm gonna ask for And then she did it all for me, exactly the things that I had hoped for, which was an amazing experience. And it wasn't the experience that women get a lot of the time. A lot of the time we are not listened Mm -hmm. to when we say, hey, I think there's something wrong with my body. And so I was incredibly fortunate that she listened and she did an ultrasound of my ovaries. And I had the class, they call it the string of pearls presentation. So you could see just all of these little eggs that had not burst. And so I wasn't ovulating at all. And she also went ahead and had us test my husband. And he turns out has some minor male factor infertility as well. Neither one of those things on their own should have like completely always prevented pregnancy. But if we kept trying without any kind of intervention, who knows what would have happened. Also probably connect this to my, I don't know if this is an ENFP problem or not, but I was not very adherent in my use of my birth control Uh (laughs) for the nine years that we had been married before we actually started to try and have a baby or seven or however many it was. And so if I had had a normally functioning fertility system, like we would have had a pregnancy scare at some point. And so just all of that came together. But then we just kind of had to wait. And it was a hard period of time. I knew that by this point, by the time we had those answers, I knew I was likely to be starting the job that I have now sometime later that year. And so I would have better insurance and we would be able to afford to go to a fertility specialist and all these aspects of our situation were going to change. But that meant I just had to wait because we discovered all of this in like February or so. And I didn't mm. start my job until August. It was really hard just wanting and waiting, but being in a complete holding pattern. I knew there was something wrong with my body. I knew it wasn't working the way it was supposed to. At that point, then I had found out there was something wrong on my husband's end as well. And I just had to wait. And all around me, people were getting pregnant. and. My younger brother and his wife had a baby and then they got pregnant again. And there's this thing that happens when you have infertility where you can be so, so happy for the other person, but then experience your own loss at the same time. So I just never expected that I wouldn't be the one that brought my parents their first grandchild. And I never expected that I would know what was going on and have this kind of intimate 
connection and understanding professionally and personally with my body and what was happening in our relationship, but at the same time, be completely powerless to do anything about it. Yes, I can only imagine here you are with all of this actual like solid knowledge and wisdom you've spent so long in study of this in the just strange juxtaposition that must have been to like know it all in your head, but then also be fully experiencing as a human going through it. I can only imagine that it was just such a strange, but also painful time in so many ways. Yeah. There's a term that's used a lot in research called lived experience that has to do with people's stories. And there's just something different about the lived experience versus someone who hasn't experienced it. And as a therapist, I listen to people's stories and work with people who have been through all kinds of things that I will never go through. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that I can't work with them or that I can't seek to understand. I have to champion their lived experience because they're the ones that have been through it. And so here I was getting my own lived experience. It was surreal in some ways, for sure. That's a great word for it. Totally. Okay. So time marches on and you move into your new position. I moved into my new position. It was wonderful right away. As soon as I started my job, I could tell it was exactly what I wanted to be doing, but it was also a whole new world. So I had been gently connected to the medical world and medical training But not being a physician and not being from a family with any physicians, I was not very acutely aware of just the full culture of medicine. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of exposure and learning to be done there. And then as a mental health person teaching in a medical setting, there's a little bit of outsiderness that comes with that. It felt a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. I really don't love that cliche, but I don't know anything that's more specific than that because there was so much information to integrate in such a little time. And so back to imposter syndrome, this definitely came up for me again as I was starting my role. My other faculty were all men around 50 years old. (laughs) And then there was me, 29-year-old Grace, that was from a different profession and a different gender and a different generation and and trying to connect with these residents. And a big part of what I do is bridging between residents and faculty and being the person who says, hey, let's talk about Mm -hmm. this. Shocker that that's a therapist role, right? (laughs) And so I found myself in this kind of all of a sudden I went from student to faculty and not just student to faculty, but faculty in an entire different system than I had been raised in, so to speak. And so definitely there were a lot of times when I was saying, I have no idea what I'm doing. I think I'm doing the right thing, but I don't know. And so at that time, I really leaned hard on my mentors. Mm. So the women who have come alongside me in my training, who have been supporters to me, and also women that I connected with, in my PhD. So we started a text thread around that time that is still going and active and strong today. We've had a few job changes. Someone's in pharmacy and someone's in teaching MFTs and a couple of us are in medical education, but we all have this kind of shared connection of experience and I consider them to be my total brain trust. And it's funny because we all get imposter syndrome but we all see each other as the amazing, incredible, strong women that we are. And so we're each other's cheerleaders all the time. We can say, I don't know what I'm doing. And they're like, no, you're brilliant. And then we turn around and do the same thing for each other. And so that has been such a huge support for me. Oh my gosh, that is so important. The community aspect and having trusted 
people in your life, whether they're friends or a partner who can speak into your life and support you. Because again, it's so universal. All of us go through that. But having somebody who's kind of championing you along the way, who sees you and all of your strengths and all of your abilities, and then that reciprocal part of it, where then you turn around and you champion them. And I love that it lives in a text thread. I mean, we could be so squirmy about technology and this and that, but really one of the great gifts of communication in our age is that we can just text with people on all the coasts around the world and stay connected so quickly. At this point, one is in Colorado, one's in Pennsylvania, a couple are in North Carolina, and then I'm here in Oklahoma. And so we have just been able to stay so connected through that. And then we use the Marco Polo app to video chat some, and it's fantastic. And then the other thing that happened around this time is that Jonathan and I started talking about work again. So we laugh because we have all the same degrees, but we've always been really great at keeping work separate from home. We get lots of like, oh, therapist married to a therapist. I I don't know about that. But we just never really talked about school very much. Our people would ask him how I was doing on my dissertation. He was like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Because we always just kept our connection of our friendship outside of professional stuff. But when I started my job here, we had diverged enough that now we can collaborate and support each other and connect over this kind of shared professional expertise we have. And that has been really powerful too. And we do the same thing, as I said about my friends, like we both just really support and encourage each other when we start to feel like we have no idea what we're doing. So important. It's like you do have a shared connection professionally, but your actual day-to-day jobs or maybe it's not quite the crossover as if you were both in practicing therapists, seeing clients every day yes. kind of thing. Again, the professional and the personal really overlap for me. So while all that was going on, I was trying to figure out what's happening at work. I also was finally able to go see their fertility specialist. And we went to Bennett Fertility Institute here in Oklahoma City, and they were just amazing. And our doctor was wonderful. And again, I went in so prepared to advocate for myself and fight for what I needed. And he was like, here's what I think we should do. And I was like, great, that was my plan too. (laughs) So awesome when it works out that way. Oh my gosh, yes. And so we did what's called interuterine insemination, an IUI We didn't expect to need to use donor material, like donor sperm or anything, because neither my husband or my problem was so bad that it should like prevent pregnancy forever. So we used his sperm and did an IUI and it failed. And so then our plan was to do three IUIs and then move on to IVF because IUI actually only gives you a 20% shot of pregnancy each time which is about what a couple who has normal fertility has every month that they have um, protected sex during the ovulation window. Um, So it kind of brings you up to par. Given that we had a few other issues, I expected that it would need more Mm -hmm. than that. So we go for our second IUI and there's all kinds of monitoring that goes in this. Like you're going up every couple of days for them to do an ultrasound of your ovaries which unfortunately they can't do over your belly. It has to be much more invasive than that. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's specific enough. Yeah. And I was taking medication and, you know, luckily, again, just so many things have lined up to be just what we needed at exactly the time we needed the fertility doctors across the street from my clinic where I work. Mm -hmm. And so it was not that hard for me to pop over there and do all of that. So anyway, we we were getting ready for our second IUI. And then I had a freak allergic reaction to something. We don't even know what. 
Oh God. Fever and hives and like my tongue was swell. I mean, it was extreme. And I called my doctor's office to see if they would still do the treatment. And they said, well, actually, since you have a fever and we don't know what it is and it could be an infection, you can't come in to the office because there are pregnant women here and you can't be infecting them with some unknown illness. And so that was especially hard for me to take because I had been working so hard, like really actively fighting because my natural feeling when I saw a woman with a baby or saw a pregnant woman was to completely irrationally feel that I want a baby. Why don't I have a baby? That's my baby. (laughs) Somehow there were a finite number of babies in the world and that other pregnancies were taking a baby from me. And like rationally, I knew that wasn't true, but I was actively having to fight against that because that was the feeling in my gut. And then all of a sudden they're telling me that I can't come in and get pregnant because Mm. of pregnant women. And so it was a major kind of blow to me. And so... I'd taken the medicine and we knew I was ovulating. And so we had sex anyway. And then we went to our professional conference that next week during what sometimes called Mm -hmm. the two week wait. So that two weeks between when you ovulate and when your period starts. And we traveled together, which we love to do. And we're big foodies. And so while we were there, we ate at a great steakhouse and I ate, you know, rare meat and I got sushi and I drank wine and all the things that you know you're not supposed to do when you're pregnant and then we got home and I was like okay you know I was just doing laundry I was like okay well I need to take this pregnancy test because when it's negative then I'll be able to call my doctor's office and we'll get the next cycle going and I was just on to the next in my mind which is totally different than like every other cycle where I was waiting and hoping and testing And so I took the test and I walked off and I was doing laundry and then like an hour later I remembered I was like oh I need to go throw that away and I walked in and for the first time in my life, there were two lines on the pregnancy Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. And so I had a loud exclamation <laughs> that I cannot repeat here because you had to bleep it out. <laughs> Jonathan was watching football in the other room and he was like, what? What happened? Are you okay? And I was like, I'm pregnant. <laughs> so just the irony that I had been plotting and analyzing and charting and planning for all of this time and I still got to feel surprised was such a gift because I never expected to get to feel surprised when we finally yeah. got our oh, final result. That. That's so great. So that was Henry. And he, it was a really healthy pregnancy. When I got to the end, I had a little bit of preeclampsia. So they delivered him about two weeks early and he was just healthy and happy. And so what we wanted as parents, a lot of my dreams of being a mom, of holding the baby and snuggling the baby were fulfilled. Now, granted, he didn't sleep for seven months. (laughs) It wasn't all awesome. But once he learned that he could roll over onto his stomach, everything was fine. And he still sleeps on his stomach every single night. It was just a resolution in the sweetest way that I never expected to happen. Definitely. Oh, I love that. I love that you got to have that surprise moment of just like, oh my gosh. Yes. When everything else had been so monitored and so like, almost like predictable. And then this when yes, like this exactly. one spontaneous, unexpected moment happened. Yes, it just makes me laugh so much still. I love that part of it. So then around the time Henry was one, we we're like, okay, let's try again. Because let's see. So this was 2016. We were 31. And I still had in the back of my mind that I might want three kids. And of course, like, you know, here's the planners of us, right? If I'm 31 now and I start trying to get pregnant, it takes another, you know, who knows how long. 
And maybe we will have to do in feature this time. And then I want to let that baby get a little older before I have the next kit. So I was like, okay, let's just start. And because I'd had so many monitored cycles, we knew exactly how my body responded to the medication that induced ovulation for me. And so we chose to just start with my OB with that medicine before we went back to the fertility specialist because that timed intercourse had worked for us the first time. I went to my doctor, I got the medication. We knew that I didn't like hyper ovulate on it. So every time that I'd had a monitored cycle, I only had one follicle. So we weren't really concerned about a multiple birth. (laughs) And so (laughs) the very first cycle that we tried, we got pregnant. Oh my gosh. It happened right away. (laughs) <laughs> turns out we were super pregnant. <laughs> yeah. And so we were pregnant and we were meeting with my OB and we weren't getting all the early monitoring. Of course, when you work with a fertility doctor, you've got an ultrasound at six weeks, you've got an ultrasound oh, yeah. at eight. So you're just constantly getting monitored. Yeah. But my OB is like super laid back. He was like, you know, we'll. I did the non-invasive prenatal test. So uh-huh. they took my blood and they're like, it's a boy. And there's low risk for different kinds of health things that they screen for. So we're like, okay, my OB said, well, since you had that, we'll just wait until you're about 15, 16 weeks. And then we'll do the anatomy ultrasound all at once. Up until that point, did you feel different? So in hindsight, yes, I was very sick. And when I was 11 weeks pregnant, strangers were asking me when I was due. Oh, wow. And were you thinking at the time it's because I just had a baby? Yes. I was like, well, let me know. The uterus remembers. My body is just, every pregnancy is different. I mean, I was so exhausted and so sick. I'd come home and I'd go to bed. Yeah. And I couldn't eat and I was throwing up all the time. And my first pregnancy with Henry, I just had, you know, normal, mild pregnancy symptoms, but nothing that would be concerning like that. In hindsight, yes, I felt very different. Yeah. But we didn't get an ultrasound. I was 15 weeks pregnant and it was actually Henry's 15 month like birthday. So mm-hmm. he was 15 months old on the day that we got this ultrasound. And Jonathan almost didn't come with me because we'd already had that testing done. But at the last minute, something got canceled and he was able to come. We went in for the ultrasound and pretty much as soon as I laid down, the ultrasound tech said, okay, are you ready for this? There's more than one baby. And just after another beat, she said, actually, there's three. <laughs> and then Jonathan remembers, I think I had just blacked out he by this like lost consciousness. Yes. He remembers her saying, let me check and make sure there's not any more. <laughs> and I don't remember that at all. I yeah. just stopped listening when she said three babies. <laughs> because like. Who does this happen to? What in the world? And so then we're like, oh, we were so just irresponsible. We took this medicine. We didn't have the monitoring. Like, what were we thinking? But then she looked a little more and she said, there's only one placenta, which I didn't know this at the time, but the medication that I took does not cause identical babies. Science doesn't know what causes identical babies. Listen, I understand totally. <laughs> right? <laughs> I get another way that our stories connect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, completely, completely surprised. No reason. Oh, there's no multiples in my family. Yeah. You know, the questions people always oh, ask. Yes. And so it was a complete and total shock. I hyperventilated. I threw up in the room. We texted our realtor. We called our families. I asked them, I was like, can we please just 
because they were going to put us back out in the waiting room while we were yeah. waiting for our appointment. And I was like, no, I can't do that. Can no. you please put me in the empty exam room? And so yeah. they put us in an empty exam room. And a little bit of fact about my husband, he really loves to like grab my phone and text people and joke with them and pretend that he's me. Uh-huh. Yes. And he's done that forever. And so we were trying to just get this information to a lot of our close friends and families immediately because we knew we were going to need a lot of support. And so I was texting some people yeah. and I got so many like, ha ha, that's so funny, Jonathan. Like, yeah. oh, let us God. know when you get the real results. And I was like, no, this is actually me. You're like crying and shaking. You're like, oh, yes. It was a total boy who cried wolf kind of moment. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I have been there in that moment, not with three, just like the complete and utter shock of it all. Because really, there is no explanation for why identical twins happen. It's so interesting. It happens if I'm remembering, and it's been a few years since I was having that multiple pregnancy, but I think that identical multiples happen like in the same percentage across all races. Yes age groups and everything, because it's kind of just like a freak of nature that it happens. It is. And then it happened twice. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. On one little embryo split two times somehow. It's pretty incredible to think about. So from then it was just breakneck. Well, not quite yet. We had to wait four weeks to get in specialists with the perinatal center. And then from the time we got into the perinatal specialist at 19 weeks, they were born at 29 weeks. So it was only 10 weeks before they were born. Yeah, And so ultimately I ended up having some preterm labor that they stopped, but then I was on bed rest in the hospital for about 10 days and they were doing really frequent monitoring while I was on bed rest. And they discovered that my smallest baby was having reverse cord flow, which is an emergency because they can't survive like that. And so from the time they discovered that until the time we were in the operating room was about 45 minutes. Oh my gosh. We live 45 minutes from the hospital and we wouldn't have been having that monitoring if it wasn't for the preterm labor. And so it's just really Mm. amazing the way that things ended up working out. And then NICU for about eight weeks and we just balanced time between Henry at home. Of course, he couldn't understand. He was 19 months old when they were born. And so I bounced back and forth between Henry at home and the babies in the hospital. And my mom was an incredible support and our church and our community was incredible support. We were just surviving until we brought them home. And then it turns out, actually, when you bring triplets home, that's even a whole lot harder than having them in the NICU. Oh, yeah. It took an hour and a half. Well, it took 30 minutes for each baby to like feed. We checked their temperature, changed the diaper. We just kind of kept them on the NICU schedule. We had a lot of growth problems for them early and I didn't make enough milk. And so we were formula fed from the beginning. So we just kept them on that schedule. But it took 30 minutes per baby, which is an hour and a half. And when they're on a three hour schedule, that means you're an hour and a half on an hour and a half off 24 hours a day, every day. And the consequence if you quit is like your baby's health is threatened. And so that was just way more than I ever could have anticipated. My mom moved in with us for a couple of months and I don't know what it would have done without her. And then a couple of my aunts paid for us to have a night nanny a couple of days out of the week for several weeks. And so we had a ton of support. But the other thing that happened, again, kind of back to my professional and personal overlapping, is my maternity leave ended the week that the babies came home from the NICU. And so 
they came home and about four to five days later, I went back to work. It was a lot. I mean, I had students that were depending on me. I had my residents. I had my own clients that I see. And then my children at home and my husband. And that was when imposter syndrome, again, really popped back up for me. Like, I can't do all of this. I'm not even trying to do all of it. We have a ton of support. I would never even start to say that I did it all or that I do it all. But even relying on so much support, like, who am I to be balancing this? Who am I to be the mom to these kids? Like Jonathan and I repeat back forth, sometimes with strong emotion, but also sometimes just joking, like, whose life is this? Yes. I don't know if you've ever read that book, What Alice Forgot, where for the Lee and Moriarty book, where she has a head injury and she wakes up and it's like 10 years in the future. Right. I'm like, if that happened to me, I would have no idea the landscape of my life. It is just taken such a far departure from, you know, we'll have our 13 year anniversary this summer. Yeah. 10 years ago, we were in our first year of our master's program, just little bright eyed, idealized couple, three year married. And then I can't imagine what she would think looking at my life now. I know that she would think I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. Right. But I'm doing it. (laughs) Yeah. In that situation, in terms of like how you got through it, was it really just a matter of like one foot in front of the other? Just like no one else is going to show up and do this for me. So I'm just. Yeah, keep plotting. We had so many people that did show up, and there still wasn't enough, you know. And so, just yeah, what's the next thing? How do I keep going? How do I put one foot in front of the other? And a lot of days, it was literally like not just what's on my to do list, but what's going to fall apart if I don't do it? Right. Yeah. What do I need to do to hold all this together? And that's been my role in a lot of ways for a while now. Yeah. I'm sure you learned how to clarify priorities like baptized by fire. Like, (laughs) yes, absolutely. Again, just our community. And my husband is incredible. I'm so thankful for him and just his presence. And he's dealt with a lot. So actually, just this spring 2019 semester, he got tenure. And so all of this time he was on the tenure clock, you know, both of us were in this position in our careers where we were having to grow and dedicate time to it. So he was balancing all of that and also some of his own health issues. And well, we had all of this going on. Yeah. Yeah. There's big parts of the last two and a half years that I don't remember if I'm being completely honest. I totally get it. When I found out I was pregnant with twins, my neighbor across the street who also has twins was like, take lots of pictures because you're not going to remember any of it. And I'm so glad that I did because truly I look at pictures and I'm like, I have very little memory of this. Yep. And I don't know if this happens for you too. I'm guessing it does, but about half of the pictures, I don't know which baby it is. (laughs) My twins will look at their baby pictures and I'll be like, who is this? And they can tell which one they oh, are. Maybe I can hope for that. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, I think you're right. <laughs> it took us about six weeks after they came home to be able to reliably tell them apart. Yes. We painted their toenails different colors. Oh, yes. The first time I took them to the doctor after they came home with all three of them for a weight check and well visit. Okay, let's start with Alex. So they did his head circumference. They measured his length and then I took his clothes off and I was like, look, this is James. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know my own children yet. Yeah. Thankfully, now they're pretty easy to tell apart and they're definitely developing their own very distinctive personalities, yes. which is a lot of fun. 
That makes a huge difference. So your story is filled with lots of happy surprises that have been like a huge life changers. I don't want to finish up your story without talking about more unhappy surprise, something that a development that happened with your mom and her health after you know she had come in and kind of swooped in and saved the day when the triplets were born, some really painful developments with her and kind of how this all ties into where you find yourself in your story now. Yeah. So after my mom had moved in with us for a couple of months, she and my dad actually decided to move to Oklahoma from Texas to be here to help us with our family and with the babies. And I mean, it was just, you know, too much for any person or any family to do. So they came to help. Yeah. They had been here for a little over a year before she started having just a few kind of minor health concerns. I'll say my mom has always been one of the healthiest person people that I've known. She never got sick when we were kids. She's a runner. She was runs, you know, three or four miles a day, almost every day. She eats very healthfully. She's just always been healthy. Always expected that she would live to be like 90 years old. Yeah. But then she started having this weird pain in her back last September 2018. She was diagnosed with advanced stage four pancreatic cancer, and it really came out of nowhere for our family. Immediately became clear that she was not a surgical candidate and has been devastating. There's not really a different way to say that. She's just the best person, and she's a wonderful, wonderful, just amazing model for me of how to be a great mom and then how to continue to be a great mom because I don't know you know, how we would have survived these last two and a half years without her. And so she was diagnosed. And because they moved here to help me, I have been able to help them. And so I've been able to go to a lot of her appointments with her and to be there for her treatments. And initially they told us statistics are great for telling us about what's going to happen in a group, but they really don't do well to tell us what's going to happen with an individual. And so they can tell us statistics of, you know, the average lifespan after diagnosis of pancreatic cancer is six months for the type and severity that she has. And for some people it's shorter and for some people it's longer, Mm -hmm. but six months is the average. And she was so sick by the time she was finally diagnosed that I didn't expect us to have six weeks. And so we really just pushed everything off of our plates and have spent as much time together as possible. But this spring, she's actually started feeling a lot better. So she's on a palliative course of chemo. We were really thankful that what they ended up telling us was that for this type of cancer and the cancer that you have, actually, we see that people have better outcomes when they're on the chemo, even though it's not a cure, because it can help relieve the symptoms. Mm -hmm. The cancer itself is so bad that being on chemo is better. So we weren't faced with a choice of don't do chemo and feel better versus do chemo and feel worse. And so we were thankful for that. Her chemo has really been keeping everything stable and she's feeling really healthy. We're so, so thankful. But again, kind of professional circling back on personal. So a lot of my job is teaching patients and doctors how to communicate with each other. So translating all of this medical information for patients in a way that they can understand and helping doctors kind of slow down and use less jargon. Her doctor's appointments, especially the first one when they were giving all of the information about what she has and what to expect. I just give so much credit to the oncology fellow that was working with us. He would give some information and then he would pause and I would restate it and translate it for my parents to understand and then check with him to make sure that was right. And he said, yes. And then we do that again. And so I'm incredibly thankful that the skill set that I've been developing professionally 
have been able to pull back over and use personally with them and haven't been able to walk this road of this cancer with my parents. Definitely like brings it all back in full circle again in your life. Mm-hmm. So pretty incredible. Before we wrap up, if you just have any sort of like closing thoughts or wisdom for awesomes who, you know, not all of us have these particulars in our life. Not all of us are going to get our PhD or have a multiple birth or walk with a parent through something like cancer. But so many of us do bump up against the sort of dark shadow of imposter syndrome. I'm wondering if you have any sort of closing thoughts or wisdom for us. Okay. So I have a few tips that I have a poem. Okay. Okay. really to my heart. So a few tips that I have are if you identify that you're dealing with imposter syndrome, try not to do things that are keeping you faking it. So resist the impulse to procrastinate or avoid or expect perfection of yourself. You're not actually hiding. So just do the work and take a risk and find that way to grow because that will pay off so much in terms of, you know, the opportunities that you give to yourself. And so then I would say build a group of trusted advisors who can remind you of your amazing, special brilliance that is unique to you. And also be kind and encouraging to yourself. And so a lot of times I just have to repeat their words to me, to myself, even if I don't fully believe them in the moment. Mm -hmm. And then finally, just own your successes. So when we have imposter syndrome, we tend to deeply integrate and internalize the negative things that happen and just really screen out or play off the positive things. And so we have to kind of really purposely counteract that. We have to look for our successes and know that that's not being boastful, a character flaw, but that's just owning the specialness about you and then find a way to let the negative stuff roll off. And I know that is way easier said than done, but it's just a constant practice. It is a practice for sure. So those are my tips. But then the last thing that has just really been speaking to me lately, a friend gave this poem to me. And I just feel like it's exactly what my heart needs to hear when I'm in the throes of imposter syndrome. So it's called Our Deepest Fear. It's by Marianne Williamson. And she says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightening about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. That is so beautiful and powerful and really what we're all about ultimately here at Sort of Awesome. And I think that just reflects back so much of what we believe in and try to encourage each other in. So thank you for bringing that to us today. I was just soaking it all in as you were reading it. So great. Well, Grace, thank you so much for taking the time to come and share your story in the ways that you have learned and grown through some of this. And girl, you have got a lot of life ahead of you for more learning and growing too. Seriously. (laughs) So I'm sure you're probably like, you know what? I've learned enough. (laughs) I can take a break. (laughs) Let me just try these lessons for a little while. Exactly. (laughs) 
Totally. Okay. So if people would like to connect with you to follow up, talk about your story, talk about imposter syndrome or anything that you've covered today, where is the best place for us to find you? Well, I'm in the Superstar Hangout group, so I'd love to talk there. But also on social media, I'm at Grace Wilson on Instagram. I was an early adopter, so I got my own name, which is like a point of pride for me. I know. So you can find me there. Awesome. So great. Well, remember, you guys, you can find me on social media at Sorta Awesome Meg. The show is on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. And you can find us anytime on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. Thank you all so much for listening. And we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created and is hosted by me, Meg Teets. Sarah Robertson is our assistant producer and production collaboration comes from Kelly Gordon and Rebecca Hoffer. Kelly Gordon is our digital media producer and we are so thankful for the ongoing support from our listener supporters. Music is provided by the band Prager. You can find more of Prager's music at pragermusic.com. To find show notes on this and every episode of Sorta Awesome, and also to spread the Sorta Awesome love to all of your friends, you can head on over to sortaawesomeshow.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.